so-called digital transformation has uh, very little to do with digital, maybe even nothing to do with digital. Uh, and it's much more fundamentally about uh, how you create value as a business. You know, technology is something that everyone needs to understand and build the skill in. I think that's number one what we found that you know that recognition is is there by the way i think the next one that we're also seeing is sustainability similarly is one of those things um and esg more broadly welcome to straight talk where we cut through the bs and get straight into real conversations with some of the best minds of the planet i am your host I am blessed to be leading these extraordinary discussions and asking tough questions that then elicit insightful answers, accelerating our awareness of the biggest issues. Today I have once again, of course, an incredible guest uh, amongst us. And this gentleman uh, caught my attention because uh, he has released a book and in fact co-published or co-authored a book, should I say, with another um, genius. And this book is called Beyond Digital. Now, when I think about digital, as you know, and digital being one of the most important pillars of our straight talk agenda, i.e. the digital world order, it was necessary for me to extend an invite to our guest today, Matt Money. Matt Money is uh, a stalwart in his industry. He's, of course, a best-selling author. He's at a great um, you know, consulting firm called PwC, you know of. And has written many articles. In fact, one of the articles that caught my attention that he wrote, um, I think, I guess before his book was, uh, digital oh, Digital isn't the same, uh, digitizing isn't, uh, digitalizing isn't the same as digital transformation. Digitizing isn't, isn't the same as digital transformation. In March, 2021 in HBR. And I read that and I thought, wow, this guy is on it. He gets it. And then of course he launched his book. Today we will have a straight talking conversation with Matt and he'll introduce himself in a sec, of course. And we're going to go much, much deeper than, uh, and I said to Matt, I'm going to go deeper than all of the interviews he's done before. Uh, and he's up for the challenge. So Matt, welcome, really sincere thanks for coming on the show. Welcome to our straight talk show. How are you doing today? Cool, excellent. Thanks for having me and I'm doing well. I'm seated here with my glass of orange juice and ready to go and have some fun. Excellent, well, we're gonna rumble. So uh, Matt, we're gonna first start with you and your personal story. We always do this on Straight Talk because um, no matter what you produce and what your accolades are or even your failures, there is always a personal story as to the person who uh, has experienced that. So of course, tell us a little bit about who is Matt Money. Um, we also know that you, you have another name, Mahadeva. And that means, I speak Hindi, that means something very profound in Hindi, Mahadeva is almost the uh, the the epicenter of all gods, the pinnacle of all gods. Uh, so you are Maha. You are you are great in in many ways. Tell us about who you are. What? How did you end up at um, PwC? Just your backstory, just for a moment, and then we can go right into the conversation. Sure, great. Thanks for asking. So actually, my full name is Mahadeva Matt Money. So Matt is my middle name, and a lot of people usually call me Matt. Um, Mahadeva is either a mouthful for some folks or just the notion of calling someone great God, like seems like a big <laughs> thing, you know, so, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I love, I love both names. Um, and yeah, look, um, I, I think, you know, I consider myself to be someone very fortunate, um, 
in the sense that, uh, you know, I, um, I, you can may perhaps detect from my accent, I'm American by background, but by ethnicity of Indian ethnicity, but was born in the Fiji Islands. So, you know, uh, have quite a sort of diverse background from that standpoint, um, grew up all over the world. And, um, you know, I spent the first 13 years of my career largely in the telecom industry, um, mostly at AT&T, uh, big, big American company. And then somehow by happenstance, at uh, one point in my career, I had a conversation with uh, a couple of folks who were partners um, in a consulting firm and uh, thought, okay, well, you know, I'll try this out for a couple of years and then I'll, I'll, you know, dump it and go do something else. And here I find myself 17 years later. Um, and I love what I do. And I love what I do because I really have the opportunity, I feel, every single day to get up and work with uh, great companies, great organizations, um, and really help them in solving some of their most challenging problems around their business, around how do they create value in society as a business? How do they create value for their for their people, for their customers. And that's what motivates me. I feel like I, you know, I get to do something that really makes a difference. And I get to work with brilliant yeah. people at PwC. It's one of the things I love about PwC is that we just attract so many young, incredibly talented people who are way smarter than I am and challenge me all the time. Um, yeah. And so, uh, so that uh, pathway somewhere along the way led to my co-author, Paul Leinwand, and I, uh, who we've had the pleasure to work together with clients before, but then also saying, hey, look, let's work together on actually answering this question and looking into the future uh, around uh, how do you actually succeed in this so-called digital era and, you know, led to uh, also the book. So probably I answered more than you wanted, but <laughs> maybe that gives you a bit of a background of who I am. Yeah, no, it's, it's perfect. And it's so important to understand the history and the personal story as to the guests we have on the show, uh, because I think it defines uh, what they do now and what they plan to do in the future to a large extent. We are a product of our personal lives as much as our work lives. They're so intertwined now, right? And you would know this when you were researching your book, and of course your findings are gonna be, um, you know, uh, inspiring for many of our straight talkers, and I'm gonna try and unpack as much as possible in this one hour that we have. So let's get right, right into fact, it. If I might throw this in, you know, one of the things I say, I believe in and that I share with, um, you know, the colleagues I work with all the time is, yeah. I don't know, I think the term work-life balance is sort of, uh, um, you know, uh, a misnomer, right? Uh, and it's really life balance, right? It's just not that you're, uh, ideally, you're not one person at work and then somebody completely different at home, you know? <laughs> ideally, you can bring yourself fully as you are in all domains of life and actually, you know, have their, bring yourself fully to everything that you do. And uh, I'm very fortunate. I feel like I get to do so. Yeah, you're blessed. You're it's good you mentioned that because you're absolutely blessed. Um, seven years ago, before I left the corporate and became an entrepreneur, I have to say, uh, you know, hands up, I, I wasn't that. I absolutely was not that. I had a persona at home and I had a persona at work. And over the years, through mistake after mistake and trauma after trauma, you know, physical health trauma, um, trauma related to people in my life, actually failures make you who you are, don't they? I mean, you know, successes are overrated, frankly. I don't think yeah. I've ever learned success apart from a moment of joy or a slight boost in the ego. And then I've had to sort of come crashing down again. So you're right. And I think you're blessed you in that situation. And I'd like to, I'd like to uncover Indeed. that and unpack that a little bit more. So 
let's talk about this book. So, firstly, I'm going to start off with a um, a slight ob sort of objection or a, a skeptical thought around, well, yet another book on digital. <laughs> and so, so many people have written books on digital, right? And digital transformation, anything to do with digitization, digital this and digital that. And so, why have you written this book and what's so different about this book versus some of the other ones that are out there? I, I, and I'd like to start with that. I, I promise I'm not going to be awful or evil, but I want to start yeah, no, with okay. some people. That's okay. Well, look, why we wrote the book was because um, of exactly this point, right? That uh, you, wherever you look in the world, you see the world digi word digital. And with so many of our senior executive clients, CEOs of major organizations, uh, leaders of major organizations, could also be in the public sector, all over the world, we kept hearing uh, this uh, question around, you know, uh, what do I do around my digital strategy? I'm getting investors are challenging me. You know, what am I supposed to move my digital strategy? Or what am I supposed to do now with my AI strategy? And the latest version of that is, oh my God, you know, I need a metaverse strategy. And, you know, <laughs> all these kinds of, uh, questions coming up all over the place. And then, you know, one common response to that was to sort of add the word digital uh, to the front of something that you were doing. And all of a sudden now it sounds cooler and sexier and, you know, um, uh, and now it's become, you know, suddenly digital. We're becoming a digital company. You know, we were hearing this a lot. And so I think for Paul and I, we wanted to really get underneath that to say, well, what does it actually really mean, first of all, to succeed um, as, a, what does it mean to be a digital company? What does it mean to succeed in the age of digitization? If in fact, you know, digitization is something that's here and, and it's uh, here to stay. And what does that really mean? How do you succeed as an organization? And in particular, I think the thing we really wanted to study is how do you get there? And what, do you, what, is, what does that require uh, of leadership uh, to make right. that happen? Um, I think that was our bias as well as to how we wanted to look at this question is simply because we also interact on a day-to-day -day basis with the leadership of so many organizations. And we wanted to get then underneath that question. And so, you know, uh, that's why we, we did started to do the research. It took us four years of research of interviews and studies and so forth, you know, to ultimately then write the book. Um, and what I think, at least, of course, this is a biased answer, but what I think is different or differentiated about what we ultimately came up with is that I think, first of all, you know, we discovered that so-called digital transformation has uh, very little to do with digital, maybe even nothing to do with digital. Uh, and it's much more fundamentally about uh, how you create value as a business. It's much more about business transformation. What are you really up to as a business or as an organization? Uh, what's the value you're committed to creating? And then how are you going to do that in a unique way? then digital may be one element that you use to support that. Um, and of course, you've got to be thoughtful about how you do so. But until and unless you can answer that question of why, why do we exist? What's the unique value we're here to create? And how do we uniquely do that? So the rest of it is uh, uh, quite a bit of waste of money, time, energy, <laughs> effort, you name it. Yeah, so it feels like, that's a great answer. I think it feels like it's a pragmatic view. So, you know, in, in strategy, we typically say, where are you now? Where do you want to go? Or how are you going to get there? Uh, it feels like you're you're also spending time on the how uh, to try and figure out how other companies have done it. And you've covered twelve companies, right? As case studies. Um, yeah, we actually group. studied a considerable, um, uh, considerably larger set of companies, 
but the 12 were the ones who we really got to uh, profile and write about in the book and, you know, ultimately got permission from them to publish. But there were several others as well that we studied and interviewed in the process. Yeah. And I, I, I want to ask you some questions about that because that was playing on my mind when I was listening to some of the other interviews. Uh, the segmentation and the demographics of the companies and the people. I'd like to spend quite a bit of time on that because it feels like, you know, again, in your book and your other interviews, uh, this is change. We're talking about change again. And change is a complex thing because not because of systems, actually, or not even legacy infrastructure. I mean, it can still be sort of fixed, not even technology, as you put it. It's people related. Change is always people related. I mean, if there was just a bunch of robots or cyborgs or just AI changing, I don't know, would it be faster or easier? I have no idea. People make change a little bit more complicated or tough or challenging for all of the reasons that you know. So I want to start with that first. I want to start with the idea of moving things and changing things or being adaptable or not. So my first question really is, so you, you went out there and you spoke to loads of companies and um, tell us a little bit about uh, maybe you've not been asked this before, but tell us a little bit about outside of the 12 companies, which I'd like to come to in a second, the other companies uh, and the kind of sectors that you covered. Uh, you don't have to sort of spell it all out, but what, what did you learn by talking to those other companies? Like, were there any observations or patterns? And uh, for example, you, you thought, well, you know, when I speak to a com company, I don't even know if it was a geography that you covered. It was multi-geography, whether you're looking at a company sure. in the east, you know, or you're looking at a company in the west around the same topic. Did you find some patterns? Did you find some congruence, incongruence? What was what were your learnings? It must have been fascinating, right, at that point? Sure. You know, first of all, you know, the way we approached this was with the rigor of a research project. So this actually started a number of years ago with a global survey that we did uh, for um, uh, uh, actually with thousands of companies across the world. And we asked them, who are the companies in your industry that you want to learn from? Who are those that you admire, that you believe you can actually learn something from? Uh, so it started at that very broad level. And from that list, we then, you know, pared down to the top, those that were identified. And then we looked at um, the track record of those organizations, you know, what sort of performance did they have? Did they have sustained success? And the way we looked at success was multidimensional. It wasn't just financial returns, but we also looked at things like what was their ESG profile? What was the sort of the, the public sentiment around them? Um, and, uh, um, you know, looked at that sort of, uh, you know, in a, in a broader way, if you will. And we then reached out, uh, to that subset of companies, uh, and also actually looked at, had they been through a transformation? Had they, could we see that they've been through a transformation and did they have sustained success to show afterwards? So it couldn't have been just a flash in the pan, but we needed to be able to see that there was some track record of results that had, uh, um, stayed on, right? Um. And then we reached out to those companies and um, got to interview a number of them and then ultimately write about the 12. So it was quite an exhaustive process. Uh, and in terms of, you know, patterns that we uh, looked at, uh, you know, actually, we, we asked this question of ourselves a lot, because if you look at the 12 companies, uh, they are companies uh, from across the world. So they're not just all U.S. headquartered companies. We have companies like Komatsu and Hitachi that of course headquartered in Japan or Titan, which is the largest consumer company in India's Tata Group. We have a company in Saudi Arabia, STC Pay. So companies from all over the world, companies ranging in revenue size is Microsoft, which is massive trillions of dollars, you know, all the way to STC Pay, which is just a few million dollars in, uh, in revenue. Um, and of course, companies across uh, all different industry sectors. 
Uh, so it's not just tech companies like Microsoft, but also, you know, uh, manufacturing and retail and consumer and so forth. Um, so I think the two things we discovered in studying all of this is first that the set of insights we got to were really applicable across that uh, diversity of whether it's industry or geography or company size, um, that really the set of leadership imperatives we got to what it takes to succeed in today's world that really creates sustained success is common. Uh, and it's not that there's some completely unique or different way to create value if you're a bank versus let's say if you're a uh, like Komatsu operating in the construction industry or manufacturing equipment. Um, and in terms of sort of geographical differences or company size differences, frankly, you know, didn't really see too many. Now, of course, you know, there's some cultural factors that do come to play. For example, Komatsu and Hitachi, um, you know, operating very much headquartered in, in Japan, operating in the Japanese culture. Um, there are some cultural factors that come to play in terms of enabling change. So, you know, when you really want to rally the organization around change, of course, there's a different way that you do that than say you might do at Microsoft, you know. Uh, but I think, well, broader than that, I don't think we really found any major differences. Hmm. And did you see, that's, that's interesting, because then did you see, because you talk a lot about uh, how organizations succeeded, but also how organizations failed, because, you know, the successes are all cool and it's nice to write about them. The failures are very important to, to unpack, which I'll come to in a second. Before I come to that, did you see any differences between a technology company and a non-technology company in the adoption of digital and uh, the pace at which change happened? And I asked that question, it's a loaded question, maybe biased, because historically, when you think about uh, innovation, you think about R&D, you think about cross-cultural working, you think about coding, you think about new business models, actually the home, a lot of that, the origins of a lot of those things have been in the tech world for a long time, you know, pre-crash, after crash, during crash, and the constant innovation that the people of tech end up doing is remarkable. It's extraordinary, right? Which is how digital has become digital uh, in terms of its term. So did you see Microsoft behaving differently? Did you, did, did you do that level of analysis to say, actually, these guys get it? Yeah, they, I mean, I don't need to have those binary like, basic questions with these guys. They totally get it. I mean, maybe, maybe you can answer that, but I'd like Not to really. ask that question because... Yeah, not, not really. So, you know, if we look at some of the tech companies studied like Adobe and Microsoft and so forth, we didn't really see any major differences. Now, the one thing I should say, if you look at the 12 companies that we profiled, most of them are established companies. So you won't find, you know, some cool tech startup or, you know, one of the fangs, if you will, in that list of companies. Now, part of the reason for that is when we surveyed other organizations, they wanted to learn from other established companies who had found a way to transform themselves to succeed in a digital world. You know, it's less interesting to go learn from a startup or, you know, Google, Alibaba or Amazon, not to say that they, there's not things to learn from them, but it was, it, it's a different challenge for them than if you've had an established business for many years and now you've got to transform and succeed in the digital economy, if you will. Um, so I think also, if you think about companies like uh, Microsoft or, Amazon uh, or, or, or Google even, I mean, these companies, we think, we like to think of them as still kind of startups, right? But they've been around already for 30 years, you know? <laughs> I mean, certainly Microsoft has, Apple has for a long while. So um, in that sense, we, it's not the, this, 
issue around change and transformation, I think, is relevant um, whether you're a tech company or not a tech company. Now, sure, in these tech organizations, do they perhaps have a better understanding of technology itself? And do they have the better ability perhaps to scale up uh, um, faster in implementing technology in the business? Yeah, sure. You know, uh, that's the case. But it, 99% of the time, the issue of transformation isn't really about technology or your ability to implement it. It's much more so about uh, how do you change? And very importantly, to what direction are you changing in? It's not just change for the sake of digital or change for the sake of change, but what is the outcome and how do you actually land on that outcome? And then how do you get your organization to really move in that way? I think once you solve that, then of course, all the rest becomes a lot easier. Yeah, we, we uh, earlier on when we were prepping for the show, <clears throat> I was referring to uh, the digital archetypes model that, um, that I developed a while back. And I was trying to take the learning from your book and trying to apply it, superimpose it on top. And maybe you can help me. So again, we have these four archetypes that I talk about, the, the, the dwindlers, the companies that ignore digital, uh, ignore all aspects of transformation and end up dying or fading away, made up mostly of people I refer to as rigidites, like Luddites, but just don't want to change. Then you've got the Darwins who are open to changing. They wake up and smell the coffee, maybe later, but you know, eventually, like a laggard, they, they sort of change eventually. And I won't name companies in there, but there are loads, much more than we think. Then there are the disruptors, the fangs, the tech titans, and then finally the dominators that I was talking to you about. These are the, the big companies who are super greedy sometimes and uh, have big ambitions and big moonshots, and they want to own all aspects of the supply chain, Tesla or Apple or uh, whoever it may be. The companies that you profile, the 12, where would you bucket them? Um, do you think that a lot of them are the Darwins? Would you, I know I'm pushing you. Are they the Darwins, woke up, smelt the coffee, willing to change? Are they, did you find a couple of dwindlers along the way that you're not going to mention? Just give me a bit of flavor. I'm trying to bucket them to try and understand uh, the demographic a little bit more. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I would say probably the 12 that we provide uh, went through uh, probably every, each one of those stages that you named <laughs> at some point, right? Uh, maybe with the exception of uh, what you were calling the disruptors, uh, but, you know, perhaps that too. I think uh, that's been, that's the great thing about what we learn in studying their journey and being interested in not just tell me the cool thing that you did, but how did you get there? Because in that process, what we learned uh, from them is, you know, for many of them, for example, like if you look at, um, say, Citibank, you know, for them, their change was motivated by uh, really an existential crisis, which was the 2008-2009 financial crash, right? And when that happened, it, uh, it certainly triggered them to wake up and, as you say, smell the coffee and say, hey, look, we've got to do something different. But before that, they were actually building, these are their words, right? The financial hypermarket. They were trying to get into every area of finance and be the biggest and dominate and so forth. And then they, you know, shifted that strategy in a very fundamentally uh, different way. Um, so I think, you know, what, what we learned is probably, I think these 12 went through probably all of those phases at some point in time. And eventually, I suppose in your classification, maybe they became Darwinites. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. No, I think that's a fair point because I think that it's about the cycles of change and the phases of change that happen at different stages based on the CEO of the company, for example. Um, which brings me to the next point, which is people. So a large part of what you've studied and the seven leadership imperatives that you talk about, 
that, that I'm going to ask you to sort of quickly reel off in a second, just because not everyone would have read the book. And I want to make sure that we do justice to them understanding why you wrote the book, what you've written, the pragmatic side of it and so on. Um, but tell me a little bit about the learnings around people. So uh, I guess you interviewed CEOs, decision makers of all sorts and across these companies. Do you find, um, I'm going to start off with diversity, if, if I may. Do you find, again, any interesting observations when it comes to uh, demographic uh, differences, gender differences? I mean, I, I don't know if there were all men, were there, were there a few women there as well? I don't know. Um, tell me a little bit about that. What were the challenges that you went through? Because I'm sure you were you and Paul were like, you know, it'd be great if we had that, you know, in the research methodology that you go through. So what sure, were the learnings sure. at that stage? Sure. Well, look, the first thing is we were deliberate about not just interviewing the CEO, um, but actually spending time with the leadership team and trying to interview members of the leadership team so we could understand the process of, again, how did they actually execute the transformation and get, the, get an understanding from different angles and members of the leadership team. Uh, and I have to say, you know, now that you asked me that question, reflecting back, um, one of the things that, that um, I found just phenomenal about these, these 12 companies is, first of all, diversity was important uh, to every single one of them. Diversity in their leadership team, diversity in the organization, diversity in their thinking. And that's some, you know, that is something that they came to in their journeys. In fact, the recognition that Diversity was so important, not because of, you know, some social equity argument, which is a fine argument on its own, but uh, just as an existential nature of how they create value, that they needed diversity in their leadership teams and their thinking and their organizations in order to create value that's relevant to society. Um, so, you know, in that sense, therefore, you know, the, 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 the people that we spoke to were, I would say, of you know, of all hues and colors and genders and shapes and sizes and, you know, uh, um, all of that. Uh, in fact, you know, one of the interesting things also was, uh, uh, I think it was Hitachi who talked about as part of their transformation journey, they were actually very deliberate about changing the composition of their top team so that they could inject diversity of thought. Um, and they talked about how, for example, they made it a point to go seek uh, people who were not Japanese, people who'd worked in other geographies like the United States um, or other markets and bring them into the top team of the organization so that they could shake up and, uh, and shift the thinking if they really were interested in creating a better tomorrow. Mm, that's phenomenal. And did you, I wonder, did you trigger as part of this process, just going through this with Hitachi or any other company, did you inspire them or compel a sense of action or a level of urgency as you were questioning them and asking them provocative questions and important questions did they did you did you find there were moments where they thought well hang on a second good point actually we've got to do something about this because sometimes in that research process you inspire the the person who's being studied to go think differently based on your questioning did you find those aha moments happening with the clients as well yeah, well, I won't be arrogant enough to, you know, say that, hey, you know, because of something we said that these companies now did something uh, uh, very different. Uh, but, you know, there certainly were moments of, of uh, reflection, particularly as they looked across the seven leadership imperatives to say, ah, yeah, you know, there are some areas where we actually need to do more. In. Maybe we thought, for example, that we were doing 
well in terms of how we create and empower our organization to work in an outcome-oriented way. But when we really take a step back and look at it, have we done enough to actually help our people succeed in the new way that we want them to work? You know, we might have, for example, changed organization structures, but have we really changed the career model actually so that we can help people succeed in this new way? Or even the point that you and I talked about briefly earlier, you know, are we actually doing things meaningfully uh, to create life balance uh, for our people and then creating a kind of social contract with our people where they like coming to work, where are we taking that on in some meaningful way or not, right? Um, so I think you, we definitely had those moments of reflection, uh, including for the individual leaders themselves, them reflecting on, am I as a leader doing everything I can and should be doing to develop myself? Because that's also what we write about in the book that uh, equally important in the journey of transformation is that leaders need to make time for their own development and have empathy for their own development. And that's, again, that's something that is uh, in, an imperative, not just uh, for your own development or selfish um, you know, desire to grow as a human being, but um, just in service of your role to the organization. If you really are mean, uh, uh, serious about transforming the organization and shaping your own future, then you also have to invest in developing yourself because otherwise the organization can't succeed. Yeah, 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 precisely. Yeah. So thanks for being humble there. And I think what I'm hearing is that the process did have an impact on people's way of thinking, because surely it would when you engage in an exercise such as this. Uh, but my reverse question where you don't have to show humility is, what did you learn from this? Because I don't think anyone's asked you and Paul, you've been on this journey for, I didn't know it was four years. Four years is a long time. You've got this amazing output. You're doing interviews, you're having conversations. No doubt you're flooded with uh, this is the front and center of everything you are now, uh, which is a transformation in your life. There's a transformation, no doubt, a switch happening in your life. How has the book affected you? Yeah, well, I learned a lot. Um, one of the, I think, the biggest uh, things for me personally um, is, um, you know, uh, the, the courage, actually, that a lot of the leaders that we spoke to uh, had. And uh, most often that courage was in the form of recognizing that um, I may not have what is necessary or I may not be able to uh, have all the answers or bring to the table what's needed here. And that means that, you know, um, I've got to step back and listen in a very different way. I can say, you know, for myself, particularly uh, since I've been uh, uh, in consulting, you know, very often we're expected to we're paid to have uh, the answer, right? Uh, go figure out the answer. And that's what we're expecting from you. And um, I th always thought that I did a good job of this before of, uh, of uh, listening. Maybe my teams might have told me differently, but I certainly think I've learned that at a new level in a very different way. Um, and I think the other thing you know, that I've uh, personally learned um, is, the, uh, is a job of leadership uh, often, right, um, is not necessarily about standing up in front of the room and having all the answers and directing people about what to do, uh, but perhaps it's even much more impactful when you can step back to support and serve others to actually, uh, uh, who have the answers and to actually create those answers and shape the direction. So I'd say that's, that's uh, the biggest thing for me personally. Fantastic. Wow. 
Uh, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I always admire these amazing authors who come on our show, like yourself, who've um, they've got their first book or their second or third or fourth, many books. And I'm sure is you know I'm sure this will lead to the next one. I'll come to that later, <laughs> of course, because well, there's a world beyond digital, beyond beyond digital, of course, that we're going to come to in a second. So let's shift gears for a second. I want to make sure I do justice to the seven leadership imperatives. Are you comfortable just uh, listing out what they are, uh, if that's okay? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, uh, look, the the seven leadership imperatives. First of all, the reason that they're leadership imperatives, not just any old imperatives, is because we really see this as the work of leadership. Uh, transformation requires you know leaders to actually uh, shape the shape the direction, shape the way, and it starts with uh, the the first leadership imperative, which I mentioned briefly before, which is as we call it, reimagine your place in the world. Which means, you know, rather than digitizing what you've always done or chasing after technology and, for example, saying, well, we're going to become a digital company. Well, to what end, right? But you've got to step back and first take a look at, well, what is the problem we're really here to solve for our customers and for society? And how do we do that in a unique and differentiated way? Having clarity on that right, around what's my place in the future world? What is that real issue that I need to solve? How am I going to do that uniquely? That allows you then to start orchestrating all of the, the relevant changes you may need to make or how you use technology and to what end are you going to use that technology? Uh, so I think that's, you know, that's why that's, that's the first one. Then when you look, when you start to step back and, um, and frame uh, your value proposition in those terms, um, you often will realize that, boy, um, I can't do it, do it by myself. One of the companies, for example, that we profile is Philips, which, um, you know, it's reimagined place in the world from being a multi-industry conglomerate to then being a focused medical technology company was around saying, hey, look, what we've got to do, our place in the world is about solving healthcare outcomes. We can't just sell medical equipment. They used to make medical equipment before. We can't just, you know, keep, we could keep pushing the next thing and the next medical device, or we've got to be concerned actually ultimately about how do we make people healthy and then keep them healthy. And then, yes, there's a unique set of assets and IP and all sorts of other capabilities we can bring to help solve that equation. But clearly we can't do it on our own. So that brings us to leadership imperative number two, which is engage, embrace and create value via ecosystems. You got to work together with others to create value. And you got to get out of the old thinking of, I've got to own all the captive assets and do it all by myself. Um, and in fact, as we see, you know, in this uh, world that we live in today, the way to accelerate, the way to scale is actually to have a business model that encourages really working together with others to solve a common problem and then creating massive value for that ecosystem. So you can't just operate with the ecosystem out of a sense of selfishness. What am I going to get out of it? You know, which is sort of an abused way uh, of using the term ecosystem, but you've got to operate with the ecosystem in a way that you're measuring the value you create for the other ecosystem partners as well, right? Not just what you get from it. And we talk about in the book how companies are doing that explicitly and how they really use ecosystems in much more imaginative ways. So in Philips's case, for example, you know, they're working with um, uh, other companies uh, uh, that, for example, have um, uh, information around treatment pathways for certain types of cancer. And then how do I integrate that 
when you go to the hospital and you get a, a, a CT scan, right, uh, and you get a, a diagnosis from that scan, that you not only just get the diagnosis, but I can also make recommendations to you about what are the possible treatments that might be available to you, things like that, right, that really help you in getting, uh, not only help you in getting well, but also help the clinician who's treating you and guiding you to the appropriate treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and look, so as you start to work with ecosystems, that brings us to the third leadership imperative is that um, all organizations need to build a system of privileged insights with their customers and wire that into how they operate. Now, what do we mean by privileged insights? So we mean that every organization has got to get really interested in understanding uniquely from their customers. What is it that their customers' needs are? Uh, and wire that into their day-to-day way of working. So it can't be just a one-time, well, I go do market research. Market research, by the way, is not privileged insight because anyone can do market research. It's got to be, you know, how do I build a relationship with my customers where in my day-to-day interactions with them, I'm getting insights from them that help me improve the value proposition for them. That's super crucial in this world because it's the only way you have to make sure that that reimagined place in the world that you have, that you're aiming towards, stays relevant. We all live in the world, right, where there's so many disruptions happening. We just had COVID, and we still are in the period of COVID, right? We've had the war in Ukraine, which is ongoing, that we're dealing with, and so many other challenges and disruptions that keep coming at you. And the only way then to create sustained value is to really actually um, be very closely tied to understanding the real needs of your customers and wiring that how you operate. And we talk about companies like Inditex and Adobe. Inditex, for example, which owns the Zara brand, right? The, the way they get privileged insights is literally, you know, from day-to-day interactions. When you walk into the store and you're engaging with the store associates and so forth, they're getting insights from those interactions that they use to make the offering to you that much better. And so that's the kind of, you know, way of working. So those first three leadership imperatives are largely about the what of transformation. So what do you do to succeed with transforming your organization to succeed in the digital world? You got to step back, reimagine your place in the world, embrace ecosystems for how you create value and wire privileged insights into how you work. Those three things give you, you know, the formula for success, if you will. Uh, then the other leadership insights uh, or imperatives talk about how you do that. I can talk about those in a moment, but let me pause here to see if you want me to keep yeah. going. That's, one, that's, one, that's wonderful. Nicely summarized. So a couple of questions around that. So the reimagine piece makes a lot of sense. And I think there's some organizations, I guess, in your experience who do that really well. And they just have an aptitude for it. They've probably done it before at some stage of, of their you know, um, uh, existence. And they're sort of revisiting it now and there are new techniques and new models available for them to do that. I guess in Reimagine, you're also talking about new business models. You're talking about new ways of making money, new ways of keeping customers happy, new ways of keeping employees happy. Because, of course, those employees are very important too, right? They've got to go end up and do the heavy lifting eventually. Um, so that's that. that brings a whole bunch of issues. I'm sure we're going to talk about the how in a moment. Uh, embracing ecosystems, love it, love that. I think that is uh, the central mandate. And it's a mantra that we're playing again and again. And I still think, you know, like I was saying when I built my startup in 2016, I was banging my head against a brick wall, pitching at all and every board level executive possible, getting the meetings, getting the presentations, but actually their willingness to execute and change was missing. And a lot of it was because they just weren't open. They weren't open. They weren't open source in any way, culture, people, 
now there's a big shift and i think as much as COVID has been a nightmare for many of us it's created seismic shifts in attitudes and mindset and approach uh, even for big businesses so I, I i love that and the third is privileged insights i love that privileged insight which is about that intimacy with the customer let, let me ask you one question though surely we've heard the whole customer story a thousand times before like from the days of jobs to you name it every book out there has been about your customer are you saying that CEOs just don't understand that? I mean, how long do they need to understand the concept of the customer and how that, the fact that they need to get in bed with the customer? I mean, you know, because you solve their problems. So is this still an issue? I guess it is. I, I don't know that it's uh, that CEOs don't understand that the customer is important. I mean, most organizations that you talk to today will always, you know, have that somewhere, right, in their value proposition or, you know, on the, on the shop floor or whatever. Uh, uh, I think really all it is, is that, um, you know, um, for some organizations, they can get very focused um, on what they're doing internally to create that value uh, and not as focused on um, making sure that they, they remain connected and that value is still relevant for the customer. That's why we say you've got to wire privileged insights into your day-to-day -day ways of working. So one example, you know, is... Um, Adobe, where um, they get a lot of insights from our usage of Adobe software online and so forth, right? Um, and they're not just collecting those insights and then, I don't know, they dust them off once a quarter or something like that, but they're literally using that on a day-to-day -day basis, right? It, it's wired into their normal decision-making processes. So, you know, the normal business reviews that they might have, where for most companies, what you look at is financial information, you look at financial performance, where are we in the quarter? What are we going to do to close the quarter and things like that? But then they're also looking at those privileged insights. How do they inform the choices that they're going to make? Uh, very, very basic processes, right? Or even, you know, Inditex, they're using it on the shop floor, literally, you know, <laughs> is how they use those. It's not just being used by corporate strategy in a group somewhere, but it's wired into how they operate day to day. So I think that is really, you know, one of the challenges that companies encounter is that they may have the customer at the heart, but they haven't quite figured out as yet how to bring the insight from those customers into what they're doing every single day. Of course, now technology makes that a heck of a lot easier. And that is a really great way. Like if you really are interested in so-called digitizing yourself and becoming a digital business, that is, you know, a, a very powerful way. It's not for the sake of becoming a digital business, but using digital to improve your privileges insights that allows you to then, you know, uh, improve the value that you create. Uh, and often, you know, that value that you create may not come because of some digital thing that you did. So, for example, you know, one of the stories that we heard um, uh, was uh, how uh, I think it was um, actually from uh, from. Uh, Phillips, or it might have been from the Cleveland Clinic, I can't quite remember now, but how, you know, uh, uh, one of their biggest innovations was a simple insight from a nurse, um, you know, uh, working with patients in a hospital ward about, hey, you know, if I could just have a printout that um, once a patient uh, is checking out and I can give them this printout that tells them what to do to take care of themselves, that would make my job so much easier and that would help that patient so much more, mm. right? Uh, with uh, taking care of themselves so that there's an, an issue that they then come back to the hospital later, right? And then suddenly we have an emergency issue we have to deal with. That's a very simple, non-digital innovation, nothing to do with technology, 
but it wouldn't have come about if they actually didn't have a way to capture those kinds of privileged insights and bring that into how they uh, how they create value, how they operate. Yeah, gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks for thanks for unpacking that. So we've done the what. So the how. Uh, tell us a little bit about the how. Four onwards. Yeah. So the how is what then brings us to uh, the fourth leadership imperative, which is. Uh, make your organization outcome oriented. So that means you've got to get out of the old model of the old functional business unit matrix organization model that we've had for so many years that really focuses on either, you know, some combination of functional silos and business silos. And then somehow, you know, you have a whole bunch of processes and racy models and so forth to get organizations to collaborate to uh, what we call outcome oriented teams at the heart of the organization. So these are multifunctional teams that are established as part of the organization, meaning that when you work in these multifunctional teams, you're not there just for a project, you know, for six months, you go off and, and you know, uh, work together to solve a problem, but it's, um, it's established part of the career model. Yeah, you're, you know, you're staffed in that team for two to three years. If, for example, like at Honeywell, they've used these outcome-oriented teams where they bring together engineers together with people from sales, supply chain, finance, even right marketing, working together uh, to innovate the solutions that they bring in their aircraft business and their connected aircraft business, as they call it. And, uh, you know, the career path for those people, it could be that, let's say you come into that multifunctional team from, I don't know, uh, the, the IT function, your next job may actually be in uh, sales or in service. It's not necessarily that you go, you know, the hierarchy is always within the functional silo that you come from. So they really engineered this outcome oriented way of working, right? Let's focus on having people collaborate to solve the real problems our customers need to have solved or uh, on collaborating to really build the critical capabilities and outcomes we need as an organization. So that could be, let's say, around quality or customer experience. And so that's, you know, an important part of the how uh, that you actually have to fundamentally rewire the structure of organization so that you can help your people work together in an outcome-oriented manner. And by the way, to work at speed, because the issue is, you know, the way we've tried to tackle that in the past with our current organization structures, with a lot of process models and end-to-end -end processes and races and God knows what, right? I know I have done that as a consultant with many organizations. And the challenge with that is that in today's world where you have to respond with such speed as well to customer needs and issues, you know, you need people to be able to work much more organically together, not have to go look up a, you know, a racing model or some instruction manual that says, oh, okay, well, what, who do I hand off to next or how do I do it? But really be motivated to work together to solve an outcome. So that's what we mean by making your organization outcome oriented. And we go into some detail about how you do that. Um, and then, of course, look, you can't just not just with changing the organization. You then have to shift how you lead. So we talk about inverting the focus of the leadership team. Um, and that means a number of things, right? So within the leadership team itself, that means you've got to recognize you probably, you may need some different power structures in the composition of that team. So if you're going to outcome-oriented teams within your organization, you may need those leaders of those outcome-oriented teams to also sit in the top team, right? Uh, so they have equal power with the functional and business unit leaders, and they can really collaborate together. 
you may need some different human beings in that team. You may need to bring some experience, let's say from the outside, or maybe from a couple of levels um, uh, below in the organization that you inject the team with uh, different expertise or diversity, as we talked about before. Um, and But it also means that you've got to shift the focus of the leadership team to balance um, what we you know, uh, learned in the process of our research, uh, perform and transform. What, what we mean by this, most leadership teams are dealing with the issues of today and they're under huge amounts of pressure. They're always under massive pressure to deliver the quarter and some investor pressure or you know, some disruption or employees need something. And you have little time, despite all the talk about it, you have very little time to actually work on the transformation of the company, which takes work, it takes time, it takes effort. And so part of what you've got to do in inverting the focus of the leadership team is create the mechanisms that allow you to find that balance between delivering short-term performance and then things you need to do for a longer-term transformation. And so that includes things like, you know, creating the time in your, in, in your regular cadence meetings or other mechanisms that we talk about. But very important that you really shift the leadership focus from responding to the issues of the day to actually being able to shape the future. Otherwise, you've got no future, you know, uh, and, and, and creating that balance together, obviously. Um, so that's the, and then the sixth leadership imperative is around um, reinventing the social contract with your people. So now you're asking your people to work in outcome-oriented ways. You're shifting your leadership model. Equally, it's important to shift, as we call it, the social contract with your people and um, really get out of this old transactional relationship that we've had for so long with employees that, you know, I pay you to do a job, you just come shut up and do it and then leave and go home, right? And just execute what I tell you in the manual. Because if you want your people, your people are the ones who are actually, you know, creating the value. They're the ones who have all of this fulfilled. And if you want them to work in outcome-oriented ways, it, we've got to take it seriously around, as we call it, being worthy of people's engagement. So that means connecting people's individual purpose to the company's purpose. You've got to, that has to be real, right? It can't just be a slogan on the wall. That means you have to also put the mechanisms behind it that enable that, whether that is investing in people's upskilling and development or giving them the means to collaborate or helping them create communities internally or being able to get in, uh, innovation and insights from them, empowering them. There's a whole number of things that we talk about in the book that you know, companies can do in a very structured and thoughtful and coherent way. And it's not just about you know, running off and creating a, I don't know, a new HR policy that allows people to work from home, right? But doing it in a way that's consistent with the values of the company, consistent with the value you want to create for your customer. So that's really essential part of the how, right? It's, it's how you get the organization to work in an outcome-oriented way and to really respond to this new model of leadership. Uh, and then last but not least, the seventh leadership imperative is what you do for yourself as a leader. And that means you've got to disrupt your own leadership approach. You have to make your own development important. Um, you got to take the time for that, right? Uh, uh, and we talk about how a number of companies, including Philips and others, are doing this, how, why they make this important, how they make it important. So if you don't develop yourself as a leader, and I don't mean just the top team, but it's leadership at all levels of your organization. If you aren't making that investment, you can't then move the organization forward in a way that is also consistent and coherent with the values of the company and the value that you want to create for your customers. 
Mm-hmm. Right? Because most organizations, I think they're very well-intentioned with, let's say when they come up with their purpose and values, the struggle is then you don't invest behind that in your organization to help that come alive and be real, right? And whenever there's a difficult time, one of the first things that gets cut is the, you know, the training budget or uh, meeting budget or whatever. Well, we, we don't need that. <laughs> and what we show and lay out here is actually the companies that have succeeded have really made it a priority to make that uh, development of their people uh, coherent with their purpose that made it important. And that's what actually allows them to succeed, whether there's a recession or not. Yeah, yeah, got it. Beautiful. So let me repeat this. So in the how you talked about um, the fourth one, outcome, outcome based, which is multifunctional, cross-functional. I love that. A question though around that, and you know, I'm just playing devil's advocate. If I think about the startup economy, having been a founder myself, and I think about my comparison, my life before my startup, which was a corporate life, right? Which was matrix, functional, and so on. And this is back in 2013, 14, 15. And then I transitioned very difficult transition, by the way, it took me two and a half, three years to actually change, let's be honest, you know, although it looked like on LinkedIn that I'm changing like this, but of course, that's just the facade. In reality, I was struggling because I was groomed in a particular way with all the management books, uh, the Welch, Jack Welch story, the winning, you name it, you know, school MBA, schooled in a particular way. And like it or not, the academics taught us to think in a particular way. I have been for the last 30 years. It took me a good three years to come out of that thinking mode and that's only because I was forced to do it in my own startup because I put my own money and I had my family on the line and I had to prove a point and so on. So the urgency was so high. Hence, and, it's, and it took me three years. God, I mean, I don't know what it would have taken if I didn't have all of those pressure factors there. So I do think this is a change uh, journey. And I love the outcome piece. And I think the multifunctional piece is a no-brainer. In startups, we do that as a default. There's no other way of moving forward apart from having ambidexterity all through, right? Uh, it will uh, it will be a hard one, though, uh, Matt, for the big companies to roll this out. And I, what I want to ask you here, I mean, I think it's relevant to all of these pieces, is how are you seeing, how are you and Paul seeing this get executed? Because are you seeing this as like a top down, like we'll do the leadership team one, minus one, minus two, and then cascade it down? Are you thinking both at the same time? Then what about all the champions? Like the champions need resurrecting and reworking and reskilling because they can't all be Matt Mannies. Um, you know, they've, they, they need a lot of work before they get to that level of excellence and that mindset and that passion. How do you see this rolling out? I mean, how long is this? Like a 10-year program? Is this like a, you know, <laughs> well, it's I'm putting you right in the mix. Yeah, no, no, this is good. Look, first of all, I want to point out what you just said, right? Which is that, you know, startup companies or, for example, you know, as we were writing the, the book, we often, some of our colleagues would ask us, you know, oh, well, what are the Silicon Valley companies doing? Guess what the Silicon Valley companies are doing? They are obsessed with understanding the customer, number one, and they work in incredibly outcome-oriented ways, right? They are 100% outcome-focused, and that's what allows them to create massive value at such speed and scale. Um, And so, yeah, to your point around established organizations, you know, that have had 100 years of functional excellence, and also to the point that you made that our educational system trains us to be functional experts. When you go to college, you get an accounting degree and they teach you how to be a great accountant. And now all of a sudden, I'm asking that accountant to go work in a multifunctional team around innovation, right? <laughs> and maybe they're not skilled for that. They're not trained for that. So first of all, what we're seeing uh, that organizations like Microsoft, it's not like functions go away and they disappear. You still need functions. You still need a CFO to close the books, right? <laughs> uh, or to pay your taxes and so forth. Um, 
the role of the function shifts, right? It becomes much more around really um, uh, build, helping to build that functional expertise. But the large, uh, larger numbers of your people then work in multifunctional teams within the organization. So there still is a role for functions and, of course, still a role for business units. Uh, for example, at Microsoft, right, the way they build their multifunctional teams um, in, the, in their commercial organization, um, uh, which is, you know, selling to businesses, is around industry subsectors, right, so that they have teams that are multifunctional formed around how do we serve the higher education sector, for example, end-to-end -end and really look at, okay, what does that mean in terms of everything we need to do from product development or how we sell, how we service, how we support that customer and really collaborate in, the, you know, in that way. Now, of course, do they have marketing experts and finance experts and you know, IT experts? And in, in, yes, they do. So um, uh, there is, of course, a, a balance. Um, it's not also that you will have, you know, the complete organization working in these multifunctional teams or that you switch to this kind of thing overnight. I think most organizations, you know, took at least three years because you've got to make some other enabling changes. Like you've got to change the career model, right? You've got to make it okay in the organization that if I, um, you know, start in finance, my next job is in marketing. That requires some other changes. It's not just change, making a policy change. You also have to, then invest behind training that person because the finance person may not have marketing skills, right? And how do we make sure that we give them a career path that they can learn on the job, but also develop those skills, you know, in, a, in other ways through formal training programs. You've also got to make it okay for managers to be able to accept people in that way, right? Um, so there's a number of other things you have to do in changing the career model. We talk about that in, in, in quite some detail in the book and lay out very practically, you know, how you go about doing that. Um, so it doesn't take 10 years, it takes usually three to five. You do have to orchestrate a few things, but it's 100% doable. The 12 companies we studied show us that it's absolutely doable and you can absolutely right. get there. Right. Got it. Brilliant. So I got the number out of you, which is great. Um, yeah. <laughs> the other point, yeah, the other points, which are really important, you know, um, the, the change of focus of, of leaders, I think that's so important. So, so, so important. Cause I think it's almost like the Achilles heel, right? If you don't get that addressed, uh, Trojan horse almost, right? If you don't get that addressed, then actually a lot of the other things just are inconsequential to a large extent. And it's all boiling down to people eventually. So I love that. I also remember the old days, we used to talk about working in the business and working on the business. And I think it's kind of, yours is a more, you know, advanced version of that, but actually that was saying something similar, like stop worrying about just the short-term stuff. You also have to look 50,000 feet out and you always have to find a way to be a bit ambidextrous. And I guess that comes from training and exposure and all of those, these are multifactorial um, imperatives, I guess. Uh, then you talk about reinventing the social contract. I love that. Big issue, hot issue, gig working, open talent. It's like all over the place right now. Quite exciting, actually, quite exciting, um, but it will be a test of human behavior and a test of whether human beings understand what it means to be human. And I do think, I feel sometimes, again, I'm being a little bit cynical about it, but the corporation has taken the human out of us for a long time. You might disagree, but for a long time, I can tell you, I don't feel that we were taught to be human. We were taught to be corporate in the corporate language, weaponized language, you know, in our approaches, in our frameworks and our models. And it was difficult to be authentic. It was difficult to come home and just be that same AF, 
or maps. It really was. And I think it's so amazing to see this breakthrough through your book and all the stuff you're saying, being in a consultancy. I mean, that's the other great thing which I love about, because, you know, you know, you're not sort of going off, off a, you know, um, uh, off the reservation. You're still in a consultancy, but I, I love the fact that being in a consultancy that has a perception with it, you're challenging the status quo, the norms, the thinking, the ideals. Uh, and I think that's a positive sign for anyone who wants to join a consultancy. Actually, you made me feel really good about recommending a consultancy to someone because I think in the old days it was like, <laughs> here we go. You know, your only ambition is to become a partner. You know, welcome is no different to being an investment bank. So, but I, I do think you're a great stalwart for that. Finally, you know, doing it for yourself, reinventing yourself as a leader. I mean, that's absolutely brilliant. Um, these seven imperatives are so important. Do people sort of come to you and you use this as a framework now and you say, right, let's just go through each one and you run workshops and uh, they have different levels of maturity. Um, is that how it's going to be now rolled out, do you think, in, in your world? Is that what you want to do? Yeah, well, I mean, first, I mean, this isn't necessarily like, you know, well, now we found the formula and now let's, you know, <laughs> let's take these seven imperatives and <laughs> stick it onto every organization. Of course, you know, we are having a number we've had already, you know, so many discussions with uh, organizations um, all over the place all around um, how they can apply these seven leadership imperatives. I think in most conversations, you know, the tendency uh, I think, in fact, in every conversation, uh, what we've heard uh, is that these seven leadership imperatives resonate with organizations around how they may, how they create value. Often the reaction is, yeah, you know, we think we're doing well on leadership imperative one, but maybe not so much on ecosystems on two, or, you know, maybe we need to do something more around outcome-oriented organizations and that sort of thing. I think what we, Paul and I always say, though, and we, and we wrote actually the eighth chapter in the book is all about this. Um, is that these leadership imperatives work together. And you've got to resist the tendency to look at these seven things and say, yeah, okay, you know, I'm doing five pretty well. Let me just, you know, uh, let me look at these two. Because that's when you fall into the trap of doing things in an incoherent manner. And that's what I meant to say with, you know, for example, reinventing the social contract with the people, with your people. These days it's being talked about like, oh, it's something we need to do because of millennials. I got to tell you, in our research, we found it's got absolutely nothing to do with millennials. People who are not millennials also want to have a purpose in their life. They also want to come to work, be up to something. You know, almost every CEO that we spoke to, or actually literally every CEO we spoke to, didn't just care about maximizing their own bonus. They wanted to actually contribute value and do something impactful for the world, right? Um, so it applies to everyone. And that's where you got to be careful that you don't go do this thing as a one-off because then you get into sort of creating, well, everybody else has changed their HR policies because of uh, work from home. So we need to change our HR policies too in a sort of a me too thing. But hang on, you know, does it actually fit with how you need to work? Maybe actually you need to encourage people to come back to the office in your say R&D function because you really do need people to collaborate and you shouldn't just go blindly copying something, right? So I think it's important, and the discussions we're having with companies are, look at these seven leadership imperatives together, understand that they work together, and then, you know, how do you um, uh, orchestrate things in a coherent way? And, you know, of course, that's then led to, uh, sometimes, obviously, you know, some organizations really want to work on a particular issue, but recognizing its connection to other things is important because that makes, that helps you ensure then 
that you're also moving those other things in the same way as well. If yeah, that makes sense. It. Brilliant. That's a, that, that's a super important point. I'm glad you touched on that because I think they're intertwined, um, they're interdependent. And I think it's a really important point to make for those listening, by the way, because we have a lot of executives who listen to our show, entrepreneurs, academics, and so on. That if you do this independently and say, oh, that sounds like a good one, let's put some money around this one and go for it, you're saying that's not what you're trying to do here. That's not the narrative, that's not the message. The message is look at all of it holistically, probably that's probably the right word, and baseline holistically and attack or you know, augment each one holistically. Uh, a little, little bit like I'm a musician to an equalizer on a PA system. You know, you, you've got a little yeah. bit of an echo in game, but you've got to equalize constantly yeah. based on the, the output. Exactly, and that doesn't mean you're going to now go launch seven different initiatives. You may only launch two, right? It may just be, but then you're doing it informed by, um, uh, for example, you may launch an initiative around, okay, what do we do to really evolve our organization model? And where does it make sense for us to have outcome-oriented teams in our organization? Or you may have that, right? But then you do it in a way that's connected and coherent with your um, reimagined place in the world. And your ecosystem strategy. Because, for example, if you're going to create outcome-oriented teams, part of your thinking around those outcome-oriented teams is how do they work with my ecosystem partners? So if it's not coherent with your ecosystem strategy, how do you make that happen, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or vice versa, you may say, well, we've got to augment our ecosystem strategy and really how we work together with ecosystem partners to create value. I guarantee you that's going to require you to make some changes in your leadership model and your leadership team composition as well. So you know, I think that's why we say look at it together so then you know where to actually really make the changes in a way that, that uh, 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 work and that are sustainable and get you the results you want. Yeah, got it. I mean, this is brilliant. And we're coming to the end of this. I could talk to you for hours. Just a couple of more things before we close off um, about people and about executives and companies. And this is close to my heart. I remember back, uh, I don't know, 10 years, 15 years ago, the IT director, who was then called the IT director, IT manager, then the IT director, they were then glorified to an IT director because, you know, you needed to recognize them. Eventually, they became, became CIOs, and then they morphed into CDOs. The CIOs also took on CITO jobs, Chief Information Technology Officer. I don't know if you've seen that. In many companies, they're changing their job titles to CITO or CTIO or whatever it may be. And yeah. then the CISO was born, you know, and so on and so forth. So there are a lot of Cs that have emerged from the world of technology. With your study, did you find, and I'm, I'm hoping you're going to give me the sort of response I want, did you find that finally, uh, and I'm not siding with anyone, but finally the, the business started to realize that digital is obviously super cool. You know, it's not just about geeks who just do coding and never want to go to parties and just like to wear t-shirts and headsets and are antisocial and introverts. Actually, these people who are building the next generation of business uh, the next business models that are thriving and growing and changing the customer experience like you know in a transformational way these people are central to uh, the decision making of business uh, and i almost think i'm putting it out there find the smartest you know technology person or persons in your business and make them ceo make them business unit heads because in today's world everything you're telling me and by the way the core of what you're telling me in privileged insights is about technology that gives you real-time insights it's not about the manual conversation you and I are going to have because uh, that shit doesn't work anymore. So do you, did, you see, did you see that there's an elevation of the IT person or the CIO from any past studies that you've done? Because I know you've been doing this for a while. Have you seen a shift or is it like, well, not really, you know, it's all the same thing? 
Sure. So, uh, boy, you said a lot there. <laughs> I know, so, I know. I'm sorry. I'm so passionate about this, but I had to, <laughs> I had to vomit that on you. Yeah, no, no, no worries. Look, um, so directly to your question, I think what we have found is the recognition that technology is an important skill for everyone to have. It's not just make the CIO the CEO of the company, and that's going to create the future. It may not actually be the case at all. Um, but, um, you know, technology is something that everyone needs to understand and build a skill in. I think that's number one, what we found that, you know, that recognition is, is there. By the way, I think the next one that we're also seeing is sustainability similarly is one of those things, um, and ESG more broadly. Um, yeah. But also, and this is why outcome-oriented teams are so important, um, that you need to, uh, not everyone is going to become a technology guru overnight, right? Uh, or even after 10 years. And that's why you got to put people together and make it organic and easy for them to work together and take that great IT strategist or data scientists and not just have them sitting in a data science team somewhere, you know, at the, uh, in the remote corner of the organization, but actually embed them in working teams that are, you know, I say working in your, in your supply chain function and you've got technologists embedded in the operations. In fact, I just had a conversation with a, with a CIO earlier this morning, great lady, fabulous lady. And she was talking about exactly that, how she's actually ship changing her whole function and wiring all her technologists and people actually sending them into operating functions. They're not going to report to her. They're going to report into those operating functions so she can embed technology expertise into the enterprise. So I definitely think we are seeing much more of that and seeing that, that the need for that, uh, you know, happening across many different organizations. And the one thing I will tell you that we have heard quite a bit from CIOs I don't say this in a self-serving way. It's just, a, it's, yeah, it's just the truth. We've heard from so many CIOs. My God, I want to take your book and give it to my CEO to read because they really need to read <laughs> the book because they have to understand that digital transformation isn't just something about what I do in technology. There's a whole heck of a lot that we have to orchestrate for the rest of our organization, how we create value. Yeah, bang on. That's, I mean, I, that, you're spot on. It's a great way to sort of close off. Finally, if I when did you launch the book? By the way, when was it published or released? January of twenty twenty two, January of this year. Right. So six months ago. Or so, if I was to give you a magic wand, because you've learned so much more, I'm sure, in the last six months, just with interviews and discussions and debates, hopefully something today as well. If I was to give you a magic wand and you didn't you didn't screw up the release date and you could just go back into just last year, so add another chapter or two. Firstly, would you? And if so, what would those chapters be on? <laughs> well, God, you know, Paul and I fought so much just to get these eight chapters out. I would <laughs> dread to think about writing another two chapters, let alone one. Uh, so I, uh, I don't know about adding uh, adding the two chapters, but, you know, I do think that one of the things that, um, that we've both, uh, you know, learned and talked about uh, since publishing the book and talking to so many organizations about it is... Um, really diving deeper into how leaders deal with the pressure that they're under about, you know, getting these changes executed. Now we did write a whole eight chapter about that. You know, how do you, um, how do you actually build the consensus for change and get the support that you need to orchestrate these changes? But that topic on its own probably was worth a whole book by itself. Right. Uh, so I really feel for leaders there. I, I think, you know, across the organizations, and we've even spoken to organizations in the public sector. It's not just 
publicly listed companies, right, in, a, in who are commercial for-profit businesses, but even in the public sector uh, or even privately held companies, executives are under massive pressure. It's tough. Yeah. It's, a, it's a really hard job being a, a leader um, in uh, organizations today. So I would love to, you know, I'd love to write that book. About how, how do we really help leaders solve that issue of getting the, um, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, the buy-in that they need and, and, and ability to really shape these changes and having empathy for themselves in the process. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, so desperately needed as well. And I hear you, the, you know, CEOs under extreme pressure and sometimes you have to cut them slack and not just the CEOs, but of course their direct reports as well. All of them have to contend with so much change and it must be exhausting. Um, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show, Matt, and thank you for being so direct and open. And uh, it's, it's wonderful to see a book that is different and a book that is trying to tackle the issue at, at um, you know, at, at a trenches level, you know, right on the front line. And uh, because there's a lot of theory that's been sort of espoused about this stuff. And um, I have no doubt that you're going to absolutely crush it and probably publish another book at some point about that <laughs> issue. And, um, you know, you're absolutely a great champion for the, the brand that is PwC. Sorry we couldn't have Paul on the show. We did miss him. We'd love to have you back at some point, um, you know, when you've um, walked walked the path a lot more with some other companies and we should collaborate at some point. So thank you so much, Matt, and uh, look after yourselves. Listeners, if you want to get hold of Matt, where can people get hold of your book? Where do they find it? Can they get hold of you? Because of course we have a lot of collaborators, a lot of people who bar you know, send you a barrage of messages, good ones, of course. Uh, tell us a little bit about how we can get hold of you. Yeah, great. Well, uh, first of all, the book is available at your local bookstore or online uh, book retailer. Uh, so whatever your favorite uh, uh, online retailer is, and certainly you can also go to the PwC or Strategy and website. Uh, if you search Beyond Digital, you'll find it there and uh, find the links to uh, to get the book. But also, you know, on our website we have uh, a cheat sheet. We have a mini book, uh, <laughs> which gives you a short summary that you can read in about twenty minutes, and a few other things that uh, I'm sure your listeners will find very useful in their day to day practice. And look, you're very welcome also to reach out to both Paul and I. Uh, you can reach us, you know, find us via LinkedIn. You can find us via our StrategyN uh, or PwC website. Our email addresses are there. Feel free to drop us a note. And if there's any way we can be helpful, uh, that's uh, what we love to do. Uh, genuinely, we love to do it. So uh, we uh, certainly invite the uh, connection and conversation. Incredible. Thank you so much, Matt, and it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, be well, take care, look after yourself and, and everyone. Thank you for jumping on the show uh, today. I'm Af Mohotra, host and founder of Straight Talk. Be well. Thanks. 